Welcome, everybody, to the Between Two Wheels podcast. This is a cycling commentary show from Northern California. And on today's show, a book review. Jonathan Vodder's book titled One Way Ticket, a, a memoir, Nine Lives on Two Wheels. But who reads books anymore? Well, I do. Coming up, I give you the most glaring omission of the book. I am Tyler Yonke, and this is the Between Two Wheels podcast, episode 170. All right, so my first question was, will this be a revisionist history book in the vein of Phil Guyman? What I mean by that is, will we be seeing Jonathan Vodders making up stories that are so easily fact-checked like that of Phil Guyman? Well, the simple answer is no. Any person that can fact-check with Google appears to be correct. It's a sad standard, but you can go on pro cycling stats, you can check out any of the races, and, and pretty much they line up with the Vodders narrative. Phil makes claims such as shit-talking to Andy Schleck at the 2014 Tour of Utah and then followed that up by kicking Andy's ass to the top of Powder Mountain on stage four, all the while setting up Tom Danielson for the win. One minor fact Phil missed in this was Andy Schleck nor his brother Frank were in attendance at the Tour of Utah that year. In fact, Andy's last race ever was the Tour de France in 2014, making this proposition completely impossible. I mentioned Phil's Schleck untruth as one of many examples held in the book. Jonathan does not make these mistakes littered throughout his memoir. Instead, one big issue, he simply just ignores it altogether. I guess that's better. I'm not sure if that makes it better or makes it worse, but we will discuss it nevertheless. Bodders doesn't come across as he's trying to be the next Hemingway either. He just tells a story. It's up to the reader to decide if that story is worth reading or believing. We will weave our way through some of that. Jonathan Vodders produces a book of 339 pages, including five pages of acknowledgments. The book covers the range of time from his early youth to getting the team set up with EF Education First in 2019. The book claims to be written by Vodders with Jeremy Whittle. I'm not sure if this is JV's and how much of that is Whittle's, but it should be noted this is never, uh, it's neither an insult nor it's an accolade. The book is well-written. It holds the reader's attention. And then again, for a cycling fan and a fan of Jonathan Vodders, it's a bit more difficult for me to just separate a good story from one that I simply wanted to know about. Further, having been a part of some of the training scene and some of the races in the book, it captured my interest from the start, and it was a book I definitely wanted to know about. But even with my interest peaked, Vodders still weaves a story and drafts a narrative that only explains his motives, but also the person I... I assume JV really is, which is he's a strange one. The book doesn't hide it, but it does so in a compelling manner. I've heard stories of JV being driven and focused, and then again, wanting to be helpful, yet aloof, distant and rude. See Mike Creed's podcast for more of that. All this seems to be explained medically. Well, the book starts with an author's note, taking on cheating directly. It sets up the tone, one of remorse, yet the same old story. Quote, all I will say is that, considering how rife doping was, anyone who succeeded in the sport without doping deserves to be hailed as honorable and exceptional. Well, for me, by that standard, considering how often men think of sex as an example, every man who doesn't cheat on his spouse or partner should be considered a hero and above reproach. What that statement does is it raises the bar for cheating just right below exceptional and honorable. Therefore, anyone who did cheat can look back and say, man, 
I was this close to being a hero for not engaging in activity. And, and also, what does it mean by succeeded? The way the sport was at the time, does that just mean getting a contract? Does that mean winning races? I don't know. Sure. One way ticket, the book name, grabbed me from the start with the description of Mount Evans Hill Climb, Bob Cook Memorial, just outside of Denver, as JV describes winning the race at his uh, young age group, I think it was 14, and then progressing to try and obtain the record throughout his career. He finished his career with the famous hill climb as well. Having done that race several times with JV and even staying the night in a tent up there for a Saturn cycling commercial, it was a great bit of reminiscing for me. The book then settles into quadrants defined by stages of JV's career, 86 to 88, 89 to 95, 1996 gets its whole chapter, 97 to 2000, 01 to 06, 2009 to 2012, and then 2010 to 19. His younger years, the 86 to 88, the racing in Spain, getting his ass kicked, being a dopey kid, getting into cycling, nothing much else. 96, JV discusses getting into doping and how that step changed his life. 97 to 2000, riding for Postal, winning the Mont Ventoux Hill Climb individual time trial, fully loaded, trying to get off doping, joining Credit Agricole, only to go back to the well. 01 to 06, post-cycling career is also interesting. His battle for Brad Wiggins during the 2009 Tour de France, member against Lance and his comeback. And there's yet to be the team, Team Sky, the big battle trying to get Brad was especially interesting. The inner workings, the how they singled out Brad, he goes into quite a bit of detail, and it looks like there's still some some rift that needs to be mended there. I remember living and racing in Boulder in the mid-1990s for oil me cycling, oil more professional cycling. Jonathan Vodders was a racer who we knew well. He lived there part-time. His parents lived in Denver. He raced in Europe. Then he raced in the States. He was fast. He was fit. He was a little strange. I think he wore either tortoise rim shelled glasses or the ones like Laurent Frignon, I think. I remember he would sing during races while others suffered. I mean, he literally would sing. I did a race in New England, the Fitchburg Longo Classic in 1997. JV was with the Comptail Colorado Cyclist Team. It was stage two. It was a circuit race around a little college town with a steep climb around a frat and a sorority houses. I got a mechanical due to a crash on a downhill and was chasing back to the group to join the climb. As I was connecting on the nose of my saddle and suffering, JV comes flying by, easily rejoining the field while singing, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. He just made it look too easy. The one rumor I remember hearing at the time attributed to Vodders was comparing teams to Europe to the U.S. The only difference with racing in Europe is that the teams store in the refrigerator. The implication being drug use was condoned and readily available in Europe while not in the States. This is the painting and what I had in mind as I viewed Jonathan Vodders as I opened up the book One Way Ticket to read his story. Jonathan Vodders is a unique manager and owner of the professional cycling world. He's had better than average junior career, a noticeable pro career, and his managerial career, I would say, is second to none. He's affectionately known as JV. He has been the center of controversy and a lightning rod in the cycling world. Lance Armstrong does not like JV, and neither does it seem many other world tour team directors. Oh, yeah, and, and the UCI doesn't like him. JV, he wrote a book. And to doing so, did he give us his impressions of the cycling career, his connection with Lance Armstrong, and eventually the way he shaped cycling forever. Now, did JV write a book to be like David Miller, Tyler Hamilton, Thomas Decker, or anyone else trying to capitalize on the Lance scandal? Or was this book written to tell us a story and perhaps help cycling in the process? 
that's probably up to each of you to decide. My take is he wanted to tell his story, whether it took advantage of Lance or not, so be it. JV's book is basically a chronologically written book starting in the early years of his cycling life in Denver. It shows uh, closeness with his family, his typical struggles as a teenager, maybe atypical in his case, and success when he's focused. We'll talk about that part of the uh, medical situation. Are there any big revelations in the book? Well, no big revelations here. JV discusses his battle with the UCI, but this is already pretty well known. You do get a sense of angst that JV feels towards some of the specific team directors and the UCI officials, but who didn't already know there was a conflict? Here you just get more insight and details and some name some names. You do find out that JV is on the autistic spectrum, having been diagnosed with Asperger's. This revelation seems to be a bigger part of the story to JV than perhaps his readers. JV gives a sense that if he was aware of his Asperger's early on, he might have been able to resolve some of those personal conflicts and relationships. Now, if you've wondered if JV stopped doping while riding for Credit Agricole, as an example, then, and then got clean revolts, results, you'd be wrong. He tried to stop and he just couldn't keep away from that type of training and personal choice. You do learn that JV's early adaption to using the power meter, however, was quite impressive. Many pro cyclists have given us the impression that this area was rife with doping and you have no idea how difficult it was to try to race and be against him and dope and not compete. Well, I do. I raced against JV, Lance, Bobby, Hincapi, and more. I never really competed against them. I got shelled most of the time. There were far more talented riders, though, going up against Jonathan Vodders than, than not that had to end up quitting. One situation JV, JV never broached, addressed, or even hinted at was one of the biggest issues of his career. This omission is odd and somewhat disturbing. Tom Danielson, he was the next White Hope, as labeled by Lance Armstrong when he rode for the Discovery Channel team. Tom won the Tour of Georgia, and he was expected to take over the mantle of Lance as the Tour de Durant's force. He could climb with the best. He could time trial as well. Tom had serious trouble adapting, though, to the Euro racing, however, and especially figuring out how to navigate the narrow roads in a way that be in position when the serious climbing would actually start. At least that was his pronouncement to the world when he moved to Europe as a pro with Fossil Bartolo in 2004. As such, 04 was a tough year for Tom Danielson. 2005, though, he moved to Discovery, and it was much better. Eighth on GC in the Vuelta. Overall uh, general classification in Tour of Georgia. 2006 was even better, than, but 2007 seemed to be stagnant. He then moved to JV's team, and in 08, stayed with that team's formation through 2015. Danielson took a six-month suspension from the UCI USADA in 2012 for admitting to illegal doping practices while riding for Discovery. JV had proclaimed that this, his team was a place that would welcome former dopers who were on the road to reform and to the better sport. This is the case with David Miller, who appears to not be on JV's number one list anymore, Christian Vandeveld, Dave Zabriskie, and even Danielson, all testified to the authorities about Lance in their own doping past and served a minor suspension. JV's vision for his new team is detailed in the book, and he does his best to justify his actions while being a racer, and then again while providing a team as a place of refuge for riders wanting to halt the disease that so infected the sport. JV made a proclamation of his team that would be drug-free, and if anyone on the team tested positive, he would shut down the team immediately. This was big news. Everyone knew about it. It was the, the, the clean team, as we would say. 
Before the start of 2015 Tour of Utah, August 3, 2015, former doper climber extraordinaire Tommy Danielson announced via his Twitter feed that he had tested positive for synthetic testosterone doing an out-of-competition control on July 9. He was suspended by his Cannondale Garmin team pending outcome of the B-sample, and ultimately his contract was not renewed. On November 6, 2015, USADA confirmed that his B-sample also tested positive as this was his second doping offense. He was to be given an eight-year to possibly a lifetime ban. However, Tommy D. reported in October 2016 that, quote, today the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency has agreed to issue me a reduced ban of four years instead of a standard eight years for a second anti-doping violation. My positive test on July 9, 2015, the statement of Danielson released, the basis of this reduced ban is unintentional ingestion of DHEA, he claimed, as a result of the contamination from a supplement containing maca root. The manufacturer of this maca root product also produces supplement containing DHEA in the same facility, and this is likely how the contamination occurred. Well, if you look at the racing career of JV, and as to be expected, his fans to be a force in the Tour de France at some point during his career, he won atop the Mont Ventoux, which he goes into actual complete detail in the book. And his climbing prowess was well known by both Americans and Euros alike. However, for whatever reason, he never even finished the tour. In 1998, he missed the Tour de France squad, having crashed before the tour. In 1999, he made the U.S. Postal Tour team and then crashed on stage two when a 25-rider pile pileup occurred on the Passage du Gois. The Passage de Gua is a two-mile causeway, which, depending on the tide, can be underwater. A rider came down in the middle of the field during the passage, leading to the crash that cost pre-race favorites Alex Zul, Christophe Renero, and Michael Buga more than five minutes to the lead group. When JV finally got his stage win in the Tour de France and the Triple T with Team Credit Agricole in 2001, he then had to bail out of the race altogether when he was stung by a bee in the face, which was kind of amid some controversy. Likewise, Tommy D was expected to take his team and also to be a team leader at the Tour. He got his top 10 in 2011, uh, the year Cadell Evans got his win. But with only three Tour de France entries and one result, a 60th and a DNF, the lasting memory is Tommy D in a ditch, broken shoulder with carnage of bikes all around him. The incident in Utah in 2015 was a big speed bump and likely have learning experience for JV personally and professionally. The team and JV had to learn how to divorce themselves from a rider deciding to break the rules and punishing all the other riders and the staff as a result. Tommy has claimed he innocently ingested a prohibited substance and his loyal pawn Phil Guyman has defended him on Twitter and several podcasts. As noted, Tommy D was a big part of Slipstream organizing, organization and his doping positive rocked the team in the cycling world. They were the clean team, now dirty. Even Lance chimed in on Twitter saying GV's team would be better off without him. Uh, JV, that is, not Tommy D. Yet, the incident is excluded from the book altogether. Besides the obvious Tommy D omission, the book is well done. It gives you some insight into the racing and the life of Jonathan Vodders, an often tortured young man, adult, and business leader. Typically in this world, we look at solutions of an injustice by simply tweeting a hashtag or complaining about it. Many refrain from even speaking out for fear of losing business or being canceled on social media. JV instead took, uh, took on the oligarchs, the gangsters, the cycling monopoly, the cartels, and their corrupt doping ways. He made life better for young riders, 
for the staff and especially for the spouses who have to put up with the mental fatigue of their husbands and others lying all the time into the world about taking drugs and pretending they're clean. But while JV is willing to open up about ex-girlfriends, wives, cycling world, I'm still left wondering why he decided to leave out Tommy D's story, the cheating lover of the Slipstream team. Is the book worth reading? Well, most definitely yes. Whether you like him or not, Jonathan Vodders has changed the landscape of the cycling world. And since he exited the racing life and now a manager, making doping uncool again, a woke rider isn't one who doesn't dope. A woke rider is one who doesn't dope and trains hard. I think Vodders may have the key to saving the sport with different visions of cycling, team management, and economics. But for that to happen, more people need to at least listen to him and probably read his book. Oh yeah, Vodders, and why did you omit the Tommy D part again? Thanks for tuning in. This is Tyler Yonke, the Between Two Wheels podcast. I suggest reading the book, One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels by Jonathan Vodders. Enjoy.